means by which to commence the exploration for common ground. You're listening to the news on RTHK. Big banks. The impossible takes two days and miracles take three. Where you've got so many different departments and divisions. Shaping investors' expectations. Money for nothing. Good morning and welcome back to Money for Nothing with me, Renita Malhotra-Hora. European finance ministers reject a compromise with Greece. Japanese index futures drop and the yen holds gain against the euro after the Greek talks fail. The Bank of Japan's premature exit risk lifts Japan's 10-year yield from a record low. European Commission uh, President Jean-Claude Juncker's 11th hour effort to strike a deal with Greece was parried by euro area finance ministers refusing to loosen their grip on the country's economy. So as to the question, what happens to Greece? Well, I guess it's still up in the air. And I think it's almost certain now that they will leave at some point. The question simply is what is going to be that trigger point? I think it's very important that some kind of solution be proposed. I think if, uh, if Greece ends up defaulting, it will be potentially very dangerous for the Eurozone as a whole. And I think that the Eurozone participants would see that as well. And there will be negotiations, and uh, I don't know what they'll look like when it's all over. It's always taste, taste, taste. I'm on my knees One day is fine and next is black So if you want me off your back Well come on and let me know Should I stay or should I go So teasers for this Tuesday morning. That was Panmure Gordon's senior UK economist, Simon French, followed by Robert Engel, who is NYU Stern's professor of finance and winner of the 2003 Nobel Prize in economics. Today, we'll be talking to Sunrise Brokers' Ben Collette to analyze uh, the latest GDP figures in Japan. Our South Asia correspondent, Murli Krishnan, tells us about India's ambitious multi-billion dollar high-speed broadband connectivity and its colossal impact. And on markets, we have GEO Securities' Francis Lun. But first, to look at today's top stories. Uh, talks in Brussels ended abruptly, and the Greek finance minister, Yanis Varoufakis, claims a bait-and-switch, saying that Juncker's commission had offered a path forward that the euro area finance ministers then refused to put on the table. It proved impossible for the Greek government, despite our infinite goodwill, to sign the offered communique. And so the discussions continue. We are ready and willing to do whatever it takes to reach an honorable agreement over the next two days. Our government will accept all the conditions that it can deliver upon and which not reinforce our society's crisis. No one has a right, not us, not any of our partners, to work, no one has a right to work towards an impasse, towards a dead end especially one that is mutually detrimental for all Europeans. 
The president of the group of countries that uses the euro, uh, Jérôme Disselbloem, has uh, given Greece until Friday to accept an extension to its current bailout program. The general feeling in the Eurogroup is still that the best way forward would be for the Greek authorities to seek an extension of the program. The main reason for that is that given the ongoing discussions about how a program should work and a future arrangement for Greece should look like, we simply need more time. And the best way for that is to, at this point, extend the current program, which would then allow us a number of months to work on future arrangements. But Varoufakis rejected that proposal out of hand. Greece wants a bridging loan while its bailout package is renegotiated. Panmure Gordon's uh, senior UK economist Simon French suggests that there will be some sort of deal before the end of the month. There's just too many questions out there. There are too many people also working on this within uh, the Eurozone for it to be... There's going to be a deal of some sort that's actually going to uh, reduce uh, payments, make them contingent potentially on, uh, on, on growth, on the primary surplus in Greece, and still keep that red line for the Germans of no debt write-downs. And there'll be some inelegant solution that will be found. I mean, history suggests that they'll try and put it right to the deadline. This is, this is very much a bit of uh, brinkmanship. And we've got till the 28th of uh, February. So, you know, it, it, kicking the can down the road, not inconceivable. But he feels that it is just a matter of time before Greece exits. And I think it's almost certain now that they will leave at some point. The question simply is what is going to be that trigger point? My own view is when we start moving beyond a conversation of a debt deal and towards a conversation around um, the, uh, the, the, the kind of spending plans in Syriza's sort of manifesto, um, when they start to get implemented, will the Germans stand and say no? And the current structure of the Eurozone, they cannot survive without deep structural reform to make Greece look like Germany. That isn't going to happen. Or there is a fiscal integration so that the Greek taxpayer underwrites Greek, uh, the German taxpayer underwrites Greek debt. That isn't going to happen either. And there's a distinct lack of honesty between the German po- politicians and the German electorate, the Greek politicians and the gr- Greek electorate. They're just not talking about the real issues here. So closer to home as Chinese leaders attempt to guide their slowing economy into a soft landing, they're counting heavily on the People's Bank of China to keep conditions stable. Barclays chief China economist Jian Chang says that uh, China's monetary conditions will be tight. Well, we have the credit data actually beat the expectations, but overall, I think if we look at the money data and also the total financing growth, it shows that the monetary and financial conditions continue to, uh, to be tight despite the policy easings we saw, rate cuts and triple R cuts. I mean, we can see that the global environment is that the U.S. economic recovery remains on track, and I think the Fed tightening in this is likely you know, to happen sometime mid uh, this year. And that means that the, the, the capital flow conditions will remain actually quite challenging for China. In fact, the SAFE report that the Chinese uh, uh, actually posted uh, uh, increasing capital outflow in the third, fourth quarter of last year, and we've seen intensifying capital outflow, which has been tightening the domestic liquidity conditions, and that would force the PBOC to cut triple R in the coming months. 
So I'm going to bring in our guest this morning, Francis Lun, who is the CEO of GEO Securities. Good morning, Francis. Good morning, Winita. So Francis, you know, China has some monetary ammunition to use yes. before uh, interest rates go negative. But do you think it actually has fewer options than a lot of the optimists out there think? I don't think so, because uh, uh, the GDP growth is still 7%, inflation rate is uh, 1.6%, and uh, uh, except for uh, uh, M2, which is a whopping something like one... uh, uh, The figures are too big for me to say, (laughs) something something like 100 trillion or something like that. Uh, 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 And actually... Uh, the Central Bank of China uh, have at, at its own hands uh, many, many monetary tools they can use. They've been using the pawn to pawn easing of uh, depository reserve rates, and now they reduce it uh, a half percent. Uh, interest rates, uh, they're still quite high, actually. Uh, uh, if uh, uh, China is an open uh, economy. The interest rate should be near uh, around half percent or something like mm. that. Certainly not more than one percent. But right now, their lending interest rate is five uh, percent, and then their deposit interest rate is something like two to three percent. So they still have a lot of room to maneuver. And but but I think the important thing is that they don't f- fall into the same trap that Wen Jiabao did. In 2009, where they they spent four trillion yuan into really uh, hopeless uh, cases, ho- hopeless uh, projects, which end up in, uh, ended up being white elephants or bad debts. So, so Francis, I mean, one of the concerns, of course, is deflation. Yeah. How much of a concern do you think that actually is? Uh, uh, I, uh, I don't think uh, I don't think deflation is really a concern here. You see, uh, China's economy is tightly uh, regulated. The the number one deflationary figure uh, uh, cause right now is the price of crude oil, uh, mm. which fell something like fifty percent in the past year. But in China, they only adjusted downward the price of uh, gasoline and diesel. I think only twice during the last year. Mm. And, and and you look at electricity. Okay, the price of coal fell by fifty percent over the last two years, and they adjusted down with the price of electricity only twice. So so actually, the government is keeping all the uh, deflationary profits in in their own hands. So they're collecting more taxes from the people, and then they, they reduce the fiscal deficit. So 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 this is one good thing about a. Uh, a, 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 a centralized economy, they can do a lot of things that a free can, economy cannot do. Exactly. All right, <laughs> uh, Francis, stay with us. I'm going to want to ask more about Chinese stocks as we go into uh, the Chinese New Year, but I've got a couple of guests on the phone who I'd like to bring on. Now, figures were released from uh, the J- Japanese government yesterday showing that Japan's GDP grew at an annualized 2.2% rate in the last quarter. Now, this is lower than uh, economists' uh, general forecast of 3.6%. So let's bring in our specialist, Sunrise Capital's head of Asian and Japanese equities, Ben Collette. Good morning, Ben. Morning, how are you? Good, thanks, Ben. So what are the figures actually telling us? Is this a sobering revelation of Japan's stuck-in-a-rut economic situation? Um, well, 
Yeah. Exemption, <laughs> <laughs> right? But um, the, the rut stacking is really their perpetual and, and unending deflationary cycle. And I think um, anything that the BOJ need to do a little, a little while ago when we started off uh, the um, you know the, the first and second arrows, there was a lot of concern about hyperinflation or, or, or some jokes made about it. The thing is, all Japan needs to do to uh, to create or stem any inflationary problems, hypothetically, is to take their foot off the gas. Now, um, crude actually should help, or the crude prices should help the economy, but ironically, they don't help. Um, uh, the BOJ with their inflationary target. Uh, mm. Nonetheless, I think that you know gives them some certain amount of leeway, um, gives them a bit of room to maneuver because the real economy is is improving, albeit quite slowly. The thing is, you know, the currency and the crude have helped improve exports, um, and that's what's driving the growth. Mm. We have seen um, we have seen actual profits per sale um, uh, increase. I think to pretty much record levels, certainly since two thousand and seven. Um, so they're making more money per sale, which again, consistent with lower costs and um, uh, weaker currency. Now, the problem really is that consumption remains pretty frugal, um, and that is really what, um, to sustain any impact from, from quantitative easing measures, you need, you need to see that. Um, now, Ben, um, the, the 10-year note rate for 2020 surged 40, 42 basis points yesterday. Yep. Is Japan's bond market starting to price in the risk that the central bank will end stimulus policies, you know, before the government has actually fixed the nation's finances? Um, I, yeah, I mean, you know, if it, if, it gets, if it gets more expensive, we just assumed that was, um, that, that was a squeeze. The one-way trade, certainly this year... Um, has been to uh, has been to short it. So when we see uh, when we see moves like that, we just assume it's covering. But yes, I, I think our inf- our interest expectations or in- inflation expectations building into the bond market. Yeah, yes, I think so, um, or at least the risk of that, um, and that's consistent with an improving economy. I, I think for us, certainly the way we look at that sort of thing, um, you know, the the the, uh, uh, the equity indexes have been doing well. There is um, generally a, a you know, a negative correlation between those two. So when we see a shift in the yen that we have done in the past uh, past week, um, there, there are two, there are a couple of things. One, the, the point that you made, which will spur concerns and also a shift up in the equity market, um, that will add up to someone uh, cutting their shorts if they're positioned like that. So, yeah, I, but I think long-term, the, trends, um, the, the, the trend on the, the yield is up. Um, and we assume that the global trend in yield is is up. Certainly, the um, uh, the yield curve is steepening, and that's that should be healthy if underlying consumption is going to remain intact or going to grow. And I don't think it will. All right, Ben. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. That is Ben Collette of Sunrise Brokers. He is the head of Asian and Japanese equities there. <laughs> Time is 8.18 a.m. And let's take a quick look at the numbers. The Nikkei is down 53 points to 17,950. And Australia's ASX index is down 7 points to 5,842. Seoul also down just by 2 points to 1,955. In currencies, 1 euro currently buys you 1.13 U.S. dollars. The U.S. dollar is trading at 118 yen. And the pound sterling is worth 11 Hong Kong. Kong dollars and 91 cents. 
Well, um, on on another note, on a completely different note, uh, there has been a dispute in the U.S., a labor dispute at ports on the U.S. West Coast, which is disrupting supply tra- chains across the Pacific. And it's forcing some Asian exporters to resort to costly air freight measures, pushing up shipping rates as more freighters are caught up in long lines to dock. We're joined now on the phone for comment by Vikram Singh, who is the MD of for the Middle East and Asia Pacific for World Freight Congress. Good morning, Vikram. Vikram, are you there on the phone? Okay, well, I thought maybe he was on the phone, but I guess not. So we will bait and switch back to Francis. Francis, how are you doing there? Oh, fine. Okay. So, Francis, you know, uh, Ben Collette was just talking to us about Japan's GDP. Yeah. How do you think this is going to affect China? Well, uh, uh, well, Japan is the second largest economy in Asia. Of course, it, uh, if uh, its economy slows, it will affect China. It will, it will affect China's economic growth because uh, a lot of the Japanese products are actually manufactured in China. So, so, so there is a direct relationship. And, uh, of course, uh, in today's world, everybody's uh, interdependent. Uh, you cannot you cannot isolate yourself from the from the woes of the other countries. Like uh, if uh, uh, Japan has uh, 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 sunk into a liquidity trap, cannot uh, get out of this uh, de- uh, uh, twenty year depression. It hurts everybody. I think if uh, uh, China, uh, Japan can grow something like three percent per year, and everybody will benefit. Okay, so we've got just two days left for the Chinese Year of the Goat. Yeah, yeah. Um, so day and a half. Day and a half. Day and a yeah. half. I stand corrected, Francis. What can I say? <laughs> so uh, I, I uh, turn it over to you now. What are the financial feng shui masters telling us? Uh, well, I, 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 I don't, I, I don't like function. I think that's uh, superstition. I, I throw all the function books away. But, I was being uh, facetious. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, what's uh, what's the outlook for the so, year? So. Uh, I think for the year of the gold for China, I think it's still uh, growing strong. Yeah, you won't get the uh, 10% or 8% growth in the past year. Uh, not even, uh, maybe not even 7%. Uh, but, but I think it's, all, it's okay if we settle for 6%. Look, in the 1980s, Hong Kong has 10% annual growth. Now we are down to 3% and we're still okay. So uh, as you progress through the uh, up the economic ladder, then you have to be satisfied with lower economic growth because your base is so much higher now. But actually, in, in absolute terms, you are creating more wealth every year. And and I think one good thing about uh, the Chinese economy in the past year is, uh, ironically, is the battle against corruption. Because of the battle against corruption, you 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 have uh, you uh, the government finally have a control on the bad loans in the society, in the banks, and you don't have all this wasteful spending and crony loans and crony capitalism. And and I think that is a good trend, And but very few people talk about it. I think you, you will see the bank's bad debt ratio 
topping at about one percent, and then fall afterwards. And the uh, local government that is something like twenty one trillion, it will fall in the years to come. So that is a good sign. That mm. is why I'm optimistic about the Chinese economy. Yeah, no more crony capitalism. I like that. <laughs> All right. So stock picks going into uh, the new year. We haven't had these for a while. So well, well, I will stick with the uh, uh, the the Chinese brokers because because the Asia market is still in the bull phase. So it's not a it's a, it's not a mad cow disease. It is a slow bull market. So so you go with the Citic Securities, Haitung Securities, and Galaxy Securities. So they are the good ones to to choose from. Uh, if the stock markets do well, then the uh, insurers should do well. So I'm uh, I'm picking China Life and Ping An Insurance and the New China Insurance. So these are all going to keep us away from the mad cow disease. You say? Well, they they. They, they they are the beneficiaries of the mad cow disease. Beneficiaries of the mad cow disease. <laughs> Francis, you need to write, uh, I don't know, poetry or something like that. <laughs> well, that's why I studied literature in, in, in college. And clearly it shows. All right. Thank you so much for You're joining welcome. us this morning. That is Francis Lun, and he is the CEO of GEO Securities. The Mandatory Energy Efficiency Labeling Scheme has ended its second phase. In addition to air conditioners, refrigerators and compact fluorescent lamps included in phase one washing machines and dehumidifiers are now covered in phase two and should also bear energy labels grade one means the most energy efficient indicating that the product can best save electricity money and the environment from now on always check energy labels when buying these appliances Time is now 8.25 p.m. and an ambitious multi-billion dollar high-speed broadband connectivity is being rolled out in India. It seeks to link the country's villages. The National Optical Fiber Network is the largest rural connectivity project of its kind in the world. And it seeks to link something like 600 million rural citizens of India across 250,000 village level bodies in just about three years. The project aims to offer government services to all Indians online and through smartphones and transform the economy from a predominantly rural agrarian society to a digitally empowered knowledge economy. Wow, we're joined now by RTHK's South Asia correspondent Murli Krishnan to tell us more. Good morning, Murli. Good morning. So uh, thanks once again for, you know, waking up at this very early hour in New Delhi (laughs) to tell us about uh, what surely looks like a huge project. I mean, just in terms of laying out the optic fiber across the country. Uh, Murli, what kind of logistics are involved with this? Well, you can clearly see that this is the sort of a only a unique, a unique telecom project, the first of its kind in the country, and, I, and, and supposedly billed as the first in the world. And just in terms of its, you know, in the volume of work, you know, the geographical spread, you know, the, the reach, as well as just the sheer quantity of optical fiber, which is going to be laid out besides the price tag, this is enormous. I mean, it costs almost about 17 billion U.S. dollars or 14 billion euros, and it involves laying about close to around 
600,000 kilometers of optical fiber. That is an incredible lot. And then all this is part of uh, the government's Digital India Initiative. As soon as Mr. Narendra Modi was sworn in as Prime Minister, he believed that an internet economy is what is going to see India gallop in the coming years. And 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 this this particular project, it uh, it seeks to sort of connect 250,000 village panchayats or local self-governments in all the 631 districts of the country. And this is going and this. This project, when it finishes in three years down the line, it seeks to provide um, high-speed internet connectivity with a minimum bandwidth of 100 megabits per second. And by, and by village uh, panchayat, you, you're actually talking about the village governing body, are you not? Yeah, absolutely. British, British governing bodies. And that, that, that should in many ways sort of really improve governance, especially at democracy at the grassroots level. And I was speaking to Aruna Sundarajan. She heads the, uh, the Broadband Network Limited. That's the organization which has been tasked with the building of the National Optical Fiber Network. And this is what she explained. That's what she says. There are a series of challenges. First of all, because of the simple fact that you have to lay infrastructure in literally quarter million locations. And these locations are in very different geographies. Some of them are in remote villages in the northeast. Some of them are in the coastal villages. Some of them are deep inside the hills. And so sometimes you have to go across rivers. So there is a huge challenge because of the diverse terrain. So it's believed that uh, the project, when completed, will lead to an expansion of e-commerce and opening up of more warehouses. How is it expected to create uh, more jobs and growth in the economy? Well, what the government is extremely buoyed by is this recent report by the Internet uh, Mobile Association of India and the Boston Consulting Group. And they have pointed out that fast-paced growth in computer literacy and greater use on data on mobiles, that's going to sort of spur India's internet economy. And, it's, and, and it could grow to $200 billion, or five, that's, that's almost about 5% of the GDP by 2020. And uh, the, what, what is more, what's more encouraging is that it mentions that the internet users in India uh, will jump from 190 million uh, as of June 2014 to 550 million. While the number in rural areas, that's something which is most encouraging, if, if, if all projections go right, will touch 210 million by, by 2018. You know, what's important now to Rita is to understand is that in 2001, there were just about 7 million Internet users in India. And that number could, cause, could cross 550 million in 2000 scenario. That's the best case scenario. And for that, we need proper enabling conditions. So that's why I said this particular project could be a game changer, and many people feel that this could even herald an e-commerce revolution in India. It could indeed. Uh, very interesting stuff. Thank you, uh, Murli. Unfortunately, we are out of time, but uh, we should definitely catch up and discuss more about this very interesting topic. Uh, the time is now uh, just about coming up to 8.30, and uh, a quick look at the numbers. The Nikkei is down 92 points to 17,912. Australia's ASX index down 14 points to 5,000. 
1834 Brent crude oil currently at $61.40 and gold at $1,230 per ounce. A quick look at the weather forecast for today. It'll be mainly cloudy, foggy at first, sunny periods during the day. The temperature right now is 19 degrees Celsius and the relative humidity is 94%. This is Renita Malhotra-Hora wrapping up for Money for Nothing. And now it's time for the news with Samantha Butler. A Hong Kong-based virologist says discussions are taking place on whether people will need to be re-vaccinated when the new flu jab arrives in April. The current vaccine doesn't protect against the H3N2 strain, contributing to 210 flu-related deaths so far this year. Professor Malik Piris from the School of Public Health at the University of Hong Kong told RTHK this morning it's important to get vaccinated in case of a second flu peak in the summer months. I don't think it's too late uh, still to get vaccinated even now, but that is with the current vaccine, which, as you know, is not the ideal match. Now, what is expected in April is the vaccine, which is better matched to the current uh, circulating strain. Now, the question is whether people who have been vaccinated with the previous vaccine in November or December, whether they should get revaccinated. I think this is an issue that needs to be looked at, and, and this is something that is being discussed at the moment. Japan's meteorological agency says a minor tsunami hit the coast of northern Japan following a 6.8 magnitude earthquake. A wave of 10 centimetres was monitored on the shore of Miyako, eastern Iwata, Iwate. The agency earlier warned a tsunami of up to one